Uh, it's now another honor to uh, uh, welcome another colleague from the Cato Institute. Cato is Executive Vice President. He's been with Cato for a very long time, very young man, but he's been uh, dedicated for his whole life to the cause of liberty. And I should point out that the quality of Cato publications, the intellectual quality, the beauty, the class, and the way in which our ideas are presented are due more than to any other person to this one person. Uh, one thing I can tell you is he is able to spot a typographical error at 70 paces. Uh, open a book and he sees all of the mistakes immediately and says these have to be fixed. And he has demanded intellectual rigor, adherence to principles, integrity, and high quality in all of the output of the Cato Institute. David Bowes is the author of The Libertarian Mind, editor of The Libertarian Reader, both of which you have received, and the editor of many, many, many other publications on applied public policy and a regular feature in American public discourse on radio, television, and in print. David Bowes. Thank you, Tom, and thank you all of you for being here. Uh, I hope you've had a great week. Uh, I see that Tom is running this conference precisely on German time. We never, <laughs> never a moment late, Swiss time. Yes, but I have to say German time because I remember when I was visiting Europe a few years ago and I was in Berlin and I took a bus tour of Berlin and we were told we had 25 minutes at the Reichstag to look around. And when we came back and we got on the bus and the tour guide looked and said, you know, there are four people missing. And then she said, I believe I was clear about the departure time. <laughs> and we left. So don't be late if Tom's in charge of the bus. I, um, I am an aficionado of the comic uh, strip pages and political cartoons. I go to exhibits on political cartoons. I clip them a lot. I have files in my desk of, of cartoons. And I especially clip cartoons that have a libertarian message. Once in a while, they actually are cartoons attacking the Cato Institute. But more often, they just have some sort of political message, sometimes libertarian, sometimes anti-libertarian. Um, and so I decided not long ago, you know, I, I have enough of these now. I ought to be able to do something with them. I should be able to weave them into uh, a talk, a discussion of, um, of something, politics, the world, whatever. So I set out to do that, and I got a bunch of my cartoons and organized them in order. It turned out my cartoons aren't as comprehensive as I thought. That, I would say, is the fault of the cartoonists. Um, if they had written cartoons dealing with every century of uh, recorded history, then it would be easier to do this, but they didn't. So you will see, I'm going to tell you the history of the world illustrated with political cartoons and others, uh, but there will be large gaps when we jump over uh, large sections of history because I didn't have any illustrations for it. But I think we're still going to hit a lot of the high points. And so the point here is not to talk about what were the years of Queen Elizabeth's reign or the Hundred Years' War, but to talk about some big themes in history, themes bigger than the names and dates, and themes that people sometimes forget. So 
Let's start here. This is two cavemen. This is an artist's conception of what two cavemen might have been saying to each other. Let's cut the earth into little squares and sell them. Now, when you look at that, it sounds ridiculous, right? They're in the middle of Europe, perhaps, and there's a handful of people. Why would you cut the earth into little squares and sell it? Well, it's intended to sound ridiculous. It's intended to make fun of the idea of private property. Who came up with this idea of let's cut the earth into little squares and sell them? Now, this cartoonist has a very naive view of the world. He doesn't understand why, in fact, the institution of private property evolved. Now, at one level, you might say, look, if there's a tiny band, a little clan of people somewhere in France, why would they need to cut the earth into little squares and sell them? Because there's land enough for everybody. And to some extent, that's one of the reasons people turned to private property when the land got more crowded, when they actually were bumping up against each other. However, even in the very beginning, when you've got 25 people and you don't know where there are any more people, it's still the case that I'm not going to plant a crop unless I know that the land and what's on it belong to me. I'm not going to build a house or even a shanty unless I know that's going to belong to me. So that's one of the values of private property that this cartoonist doesn't understand. That once you agree this is mine and that's yours, and we, know, we know what the rules are, then we can both start, I will grow corn and you will grow apple trees and then we'll be able to exchange. But if you could just come and take the corn I've spent the year planting, then I don't plant any corn the second year, and we, we stop right there in terms of human civilization. Now, people sort of understood this. Where does the modern anti-private property view come from? <clears throat> well, one possibility is that it comes from a French philosopher named Jean-Jacques Rousseau. I once heard him at Cato University described as the source of all evil in the world. Um, I am not well read enough to make that declaration. But I can read you this quotation. This is from his Discourse on Inequality. The first man who, having fenced in a piece of land, said, this is mine, and found people naive enough to believe him, that man was the true founder of civil society, which sounds good to me, but Rousseau did not like civil society. <laughs> you are undone if you once forget that the fruits of the earth belong to us all and the earth itself to nobody. Well, in fact, Rousseau's books are read in every college uh, political philosophy class, and mine are not, but he's the person who is naive. If he thinks that people would produce enough food to feed the world, even the world in 1754, much less the world today, without being able to know that what they grew would make for a better life for themselves and their families, then he is very naive. The fact is, if you didn't have the institution of private property, you could barely sustain life at a subsistence level for a few small bands of, of villagers. All right, let's move on a little bit. We're still in caveman area. When I was your age, things were exactly the way they are now. <laughs> That's true. We don't think about that today. I mean, 
it's just a standard, it's a standard joke among older people, right, that I don't know how the new technology works, much less I don't know the music and I don't know why they wear their hair that way. Um, but there was a time, and it, it didn't end in caveman times, when, when I was your age, things were exactly the way they are now. Some of you may have heard of an economic historian named Angus Madison, died a few years ago. He wrote many important books. The only thing I know about them is he drew a chart, a chart that looks like a hockey stick. And what that chart was, was standard of living or GDP per capita in the world. And he drew it from 1000 to the year 2000. From the year one, all right, I got a much better story to follow. Okay, he drew it from the year one, but basically it doesn't make any difference because it was all the same. And his chart of economic growth, standard of living, over that period was, it's not until about 1750 in England, the Netherlands, then the United States, then Europe. And actually, he drew a second chart, and it goes like 200 years farther, that's China. 1980, 1980 years from the birth of Christ, the Chinese standard of living is like this, and then it turns up. But there is a historian, he happens, an economic historian, he happens to be a big left-winger, Brad DeLong, at uh, University of California, Berkeley, who has also dug into this question, and he has amended Madison's work, and he shows charts, and obviously there's a lot of uncertainty about these things, but we know something, and he says... GDP per capita was the same from 100,000 BC to about 1300. Now, there are a few little bumps along there. It's, it's sort of like what we would call $100 per capita per year. And he'll show that maybe in Rome it went up to 150, and maybe in the Dark Ages it fell to 80, but it's hovering for 100,000 years around what we would call $100 uh, per capita per year. Um, now, he starts, the, he starts the climb at 1300. Uh, Madison seemed pretty skeptical that there was much actual increase in the standard of living uh, between, say, 1300 and, and 1700, but still, um, that's the general idea. Deirdre McCloskey, one of the great libertarian scholars these days, writes in her trilogy of books about what she calls the great fact, which is the great fact of human history, the enormous and unprecedented growth in living standards that began in the Western world around 1700. And she's tried to estimate how much richer are we than our ancestors in 1700. And I think at one point she said, well, we're 16 times richer. It's hard to measure. How do you measure this building against whatever building somebody had in 1700. But I think she went on to say it might be 30, it might be 100 times, depending on how you measure it. It is unfathomably different. And even in a world of fast-paced change, we may forget just how different the world is and also how recently it began to be so different. All right, here's a cartoon. When escrow was simple, if you've ever, you know, dealt with escrow, you know it's not simple. This one was simple. You drop a rock on the guy who owns the cave, and you move in. Um, 
to me, this one just sort of tells the story. You've heard of the noble savage, the myth of the noble savage. Wasn't it wonderful before capitalism when people lived in harmony with the earth and one another? Uh, imagine no religion, imagine no property. Then everyone would live in No, this is what they would do. They would drop rocks on each other and take their cave, and also the women who were in the cave. Um, but now we start to get a little bit of progress. The birth of free market economics. One guy says, I wish I had a rock. The other guy says, I wish I had a stick. Hey, we could exchange. And once you figure out that exchange benefits both parties, you've made a huge leap toward civilization. Now, it's too bad it's a rock and a stick. An apple and a fish seems to me would, would make a better point. But still, you start with what you have, and they had rocks and sticks to begin with. This is actually the Frank and Ernest cartoon, which over the years has occasionally had libertarian things, including about 30 years ago, there was a Frank and Ernest cartoon. I actually wrote to the cartoonist and asked for a, uh, an original version of it, um, in which one modern person is saying to another, wow, China really is opening up. My fortune cookie is a message from Milton Friedman. That's much later. All right. This next one might be my favorite in the whole discussion. This is a picture of history. You have something I want. I'm going to either buy it or take it. That's the insight. Once people figure out, for thousands of years, people went and took things. That's what the Vikings did. That's what Genghis Khan did. Go take things. Once people figure out it could be better to buy things, then you can have peace, you can have exchange, you can have commerce, and we know because every voluntary, voluntary exchange makes both parties better off, that's when you can start getting improvements in your standard of living. Figuring this out is the source of progress. The great libertarian-ish sociologist Franz Oppenheimer wrote, there are two fundamentally opposed means whereby man requiring sustenance is impelled to obtain the necessary means for satisfying his desires. These are work and robbery, one's own labor and the forcible appropriation of the labor of others. In that sentence, he says work and robbery. And that's kind of what we see going on in the cartoon. Hmm, I can either rob this guy or I can avoid violence and offer to buy it. But work versus robbery is a much bigger issue than being mugged on the street. This is the economic means of gaining wealth versus the political means. So part of I'm going to either buy it or take it is in most of our lives, we deal with people on the basis of buying, exchanging. What you want, what I want, we exchange. But when we enter into the political sphere, then we start thinking that we can take things. What is taxation? Taxation is the political means of gaining wealth. And if you want to be really blunt about it, it's robbery. People work and other people rob them. Some people work hard. That's the virtue President Obama extolled last night in his farewell address. 
the virtues of honesty and hard work. Well, that's good, and it's good to have a president who believes in the virtues of honesty and hard work. But we know that he also believed in raising people's taxes, taking more of what they had worked hard to get. All right, this one is very complicated, but in the end, what it says is Homer, the character, joins a gang, and Homer is witnessing history. Eventually, the gang becomes more sophisticated and organized uh, in, its, in, in its raids on society and, involved, and evolves into what is known today as a political party. <laughs> That's an organized gang. Um, now, in history, we talk about something that this process involves. Roving bandits who become stationary bandits. Roving bandits mean every now and then Genghis Khan sweeps through your community and takes everything you have. Um, and there have been plenty of those bandits throughout history. Stationary bandits settle down. They conquer you. They settle down, they build a castle, and they force you to work for them. Um, sometimes that means being a slave. Sometimes it means being a serf. Sometimes it just means being subject to the ruler or the political party. The advantage of it is, it is bad to have roving bandits come at unexpected moments and take everything you've created. The stationary bandits don't take everything because they understand that if they take everything, you will not produce anything next year. So they say, all right, we'll take 25% of everything you produce. Okay, if I get to keep 75%, I... I will still plant corn this year because I'll keep 75% of it. That's why a lot of historians regard the creation of the organized political means to be an advance for liberty and civilization. Better the stationary bandits than the roving bandits. Those of you who are paying 30, 40, 50, some of you come from countries where you may be paying 60 or 70% in taxes, you may not see the great advantage of the stationary bandits, but still, compared to the roving bandits, probably better. Um, oh, that was, I was supposed to, see, I was supposed to bring that up where you could actually read um, that final panel. Now here's another one, and this is actually kind of similar. Back in the Dark Ages, when there was no social order, we went looting and pillaging whenever we wanted. Then somebody said, whoa, let's put some, thing, let's put some order into things by forming a government and elect people to loot and pillage us. <laughs> well, that kind of is what government means. Uh, we're seeing right now two political leaders offering to some potential supporters, we will loot the other side and give things to you. We will prevent China from undercutting you by importing their products here. We will stop Mexicans from coming in and working cheap here. The other party, well, both parties are kind of saying that these days, uh, but at least the other party is saying, we will organize a political majority, and then we will take what people are producing, and then we will distribute it to people who will vote for us. This actually goes back at least to the days of the New Deal when, um, uh, I guess it was Harold Ickes, uh, who was famous for saying, we will tax and tax and spend and spend and elect and elect. Because generally, when you give people money, they like that. 
And if they don't see what the whole process involves, then it seems like President Roosevelt, President Johnson, President Obama is beneficent. He's giving you things. Going to give you free college. Going to give you free schools. Going to give you a free house. Um, it's not quite true that Obama gave people phones, but the, <laughs> the resentment over Obama's give people stuff attitude uh, played into people thinking that. What Broomhilda is talking about here is the transition from pillaging from the roving bandits to government, though perhaps not immediately to democracy. Um, you don't really get to elect people at first. At first it's just feudal lords and so on. Eventually you get to elect people, but they do still loot and pillage you. Here's a Hagar the Horrible uh, cartoon, theoretically about the Viking world. Your taxes are due. What, weren't you guys just here last year? The concept of taxation is difficult for some people to comprehend. <laughs> well, again, I guess we have the difference between the uh, uh, stationary, the roving bandits and the stationary bandits. Hagar is used to them coming through every now and then, but you were just here last year and now you're back? We weren't counting on that. All right, now we are going to skip a long way to early modern times because the cartoonists did not do a very good job of writing interesting cartoons about uh, what's intermediate here. So, also I think we're going into an era of more sophisticated cartoons coming from the New Yorker instead of comic strips. Native Americans saying, well, they look pretty undocumented to me. <laughs> and how'd that work out? Um, one of the things this reminds us of is that globalization has been going on for centuries. We talk about the post-World War II era of globalization and it's important, but there was globalization. You know, when I start trying to study British history, English history, it gets very confusing. Sometimes in my Anglophile self, I'll say, you know, it's unfortunate that the uh, the English people are ruled over by these Germans. Because if you look, you see an awful lot of German kings coming in and, and ruling over the English people. On the other hand, who are the English people? Some of them are Normans. Some of them are Angles and Saxons. Where did they come from? Now, you could go back to the Celts and the Picts, but they probably came to this island from somewhere too. So there's been globalization going on for a long time. One of the most dramatic elements was Europeans coming to the New World, but it wasn't the only example. And you know, Matt Ridley, um, in his most recent book, talks about ideas having sex. One of the things that changes the world is people with ideas meeting other people with ideas and those ideas being combined, whether it's food or technology or transportation or political ideas. And that's a source of progress in the world. European settlement of America changed the world. But look, there were large groups of people moving around the world in the Eurasian landmass, maybe coming out of Africa, maybe going into Southeast Asia. Some of these things I'm not expert in, some of these things maybe nobody's an expert in. But globalization has been happening for a long time, and it's the Groups of people who don't have ports, who, don't, who, who isolate themselves from new ideas and new people who end up stagnating. 
All right, now we move a little farther to, actually it's fairly similar to that, the golden age. Here are two people, maybe Frenchmen in the 18th century. Yes, it's a golden age, or would be if we weren't all swarming with lice. It looks beautiful, right? You see these, these, these beautiful costumes, and you see Versailles. Admittedly, Versailles is the most extravagant palace, and that's the one we go to see. But still, there were a lot of palaces in England and France and Germany, castles that looked pretty nice. But they were all swarming with lice. Um, traditionalist conservatives sometimes talk about the world we have lost before liberalism and capitalism upended the natural order of the world. This world we have lost was a world of hierarchy. Everybody knew their place. If your father was a duke, you're a duke. If your father was an earl, you're an earl. If your father was a peasant, you're a peasant. Your son will be a peasant. Your grandson will be a peasant. Now, there is something comforting about that world. Knowing your place, there is some comfort. Any of you who have ever gone to a place where you didn't know your place, it might have been entering high school, it might have been entering college, it might have been starting a new job, moving to a new city. Some of you moved to a new country. It can be really disconcerting not to know your place. However, in the long run, it's going to be better for you and better for society that people don't have to be what their father was. Also important to remember that this golden age, and boy, I love going to Europe and touring these uh, palaces, but it was a very poor world. In the first place, most people didn't own palaces. More people lived in them than owned them because there were servants there, serfs and so on. But even the palaces, I once toured a castle in England with the great economic historian Max Hartwell. And everybody's ooing and eyeing. wow, isn't this impressive, this is so amazing. And he said, yes it is, but you need to remember, it was very cold in here. They had fires scattered throughout the rooms, but that's all they had. And he said, it stank, because think about it, they didn't have modern plumbing. Um, he told us that why did they plant orange trees in the gardens of Versailles? Because their strong fragrance would cover up what would otherwise be the stench of human activity going on outside the walls of the palace. They're beautiful to look at. You would not actually have wanted to live there. And most people didn't live there. Most people's homes from this golden age don't exist anymore. They were pretty awful. I read a book review in the Washington Post a couple of years ago that talked about 18th century America. I'm going to read you a quote from it. Invited to dine uh, with a family as he was passing through some state, a 1744 traveler from Maryland to Maine declined. He described the meal they had no cloth upon the table, and their mess was in a dirty, deep wooden dish, which they evacuated with their hands, cramming down skins, scales, and all. They used neither knife, fork, spoon, plate, or napkin, because I suppose they had none to use. They offered him their hospitality, but, but that's what they had. By the standards of the age, the author wrote, it was not bad. 
Only about a third of the families in 17th century Virginia had chairs or benches, and only one in seven had both. Only about a quarter of the early Virginian houses had tables. Ever visited one of the houses from 17th or 18th century uh, Virginia? They're beautiful. There weren't many like that. Most people were living in huts, houses without a table or a chair. And my ancestors came from Scotland, or at least the ones that carry my name uh, did. Uh, eight generations back, you have 64 ancestors, and the one I know about was Scottish. Um, so here's a book about what Scotland was like around the 17th century. The squalor and meanness of lowland Scottish life around 16 or 1700 can hardly be conceived today. A cluster of hovels housed the tenants, tenants and their helpers. A home was likely to be a shanty. The fire filled the whole hut with malodorous clouds. Cattle were tethered at night at one end of the room while the family lay at the other end on heather piled upon the dirt floor. Vermin abounded, skin diseases, infectious diseases. And that was Scotland. That's not the poorest part of the world. It's not even the poorest part of Europe. Um, that's what this golden age was actually like. Moving forward a century or so, uh, or so some of you may uh, have heard the name George Vanderbilt. He's of the wealthy Vanderbilt family. And he built the largest house in America, Biltmore. Beautiful. I've toured it twice. I spent three hours touring it each time. You can listen to audio for that long about what it is. He brought things over from uh, castles in the old world and everything. But a friend of ours, Brian Kaplan, wrote recently, he said he, he went to Biltmore. And he said, boy, is it impressive. But you know, I was thinking, didn't have any air conditioning. And he had this fabulous library but I have access to more books right now in my pocket than he could ever have had. I have access to more music than he could have had. Um, he had no internet. He had no air conditioning. Um, he had no automobile. He had no airplane. He had enough money to travel all over the world, but he traveled very slowly. And he died suddenly at the age of 51 from complications following an appendectomy. That's not even, you know, the, the, the pre-capitalist, early capitalist world. That's after a century of capitalist progress. That's still happening. That's the progress we have made. Okay, now I'm going to skip again to the modern world. And here is an argument Get off, it's, it's Avon ladies, get off my turf now, Rondo, or we're going to blast you and your sales kits to smithereens. And the caption says, with the economy tightening, residential streets are seeing more and more cosmetics wars. Well, you know, that could happen when the economy tightens, but it doesn't. It only happens in black markets, in prohibited markets. We have lots of regulations, and as bad as the regulations are, they cost us a lot of money, they prevent economic growth, they have slowed startups down for the past 10 years or more, but they don't lead to this sort of thing. What does lead to this sort of thing 
is prohibiting alcohol in the 1920s and you start getting things like the St. Valentine's Day Massacre because you can't outbid each other. You can't go to the owner of the corner and say, I will pay higher rent than the guy who's there now. And today, under drug prohibition, you have the same problem. How do you get the best corner for selling heroin? You have to shoot the guy who's there now. And how do you get recompense? If your customer promises to pay you tomorrow but he doesn't, you can't go to the police. All you can do is shoot him. And if your dealer sells you something that's tainted, again, you can't go to the police. You can shoot him or you can die, which is often what happens with tainted drugs. Tainted drugs don't happen very often in the above-ground capitalist market. They happen in the prohibited market. And now we get to really our contemporary world. Here's a uh, Wall Street Journal cartoon, two people riding up from an atrium to the office and saying, well, back to the salt mines. <laughs> we all say that. Um, you may have seen the uh, hashtag if you're into Twitter and things, hashtag first world problems. I can't get good Wi-Fi. Um, why is the new Harry Potter not coming out in this country until March? First world problems. Um, and not just first world, but today first world problems because in the history of the world all of this would have been inconceivable. Um, and uh-oh, I forgot I had this in here. There's the other Frank and Ernest cartoon. Wow, China really is loosening up. My fortune cookie message is a quote from Milton Friedman. Just in the last 40 years, capitalism and liberalism and markets moving to the world's largest country. And Milton Friedman played a little bit of a role. I mean, he did advise a couple of the Chinese leaders about markets. Andre Schleifer, who is a distinguished professor of economics at Harvard, wrote an article recently, I believe it was called The Age of Milton Friedman. And what he wrote was, the last quarter century has witnessed remarkable progress of mankind. The last quarter century also saw wide acceptance of free market policies in both rich and poor countries, from private ownership to free trade to responsible budgets to lower taxes. And he said, three people who were significant in making this change in world history and world economic policy were Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, and Deng Xiaoping, and he wrote, all three of these leaders professed inspiration from the work of Milton Friedman. It is natural then to refer to the last quarter century as the age of Milton Friedman. That Angus Madison chart that I told you about, it's like this for almost 2,000 years, and then maybe around 1700 it starts turning up in Europe takes another 200, 250 years before it starts turning up in China, but it's happening now. And that's why there's been probably more total creation of wealth in the past generation than ever before in the history of the world, because China is bringing a billion people out of backbreaking poverty and into the lower middle class. Um, India, a little bit slower and clunkier, also bringing more people into that. If you read the Economic Freedom of the World reports that Cato and the Fraser Institute publish uh, every year or two, 
since they started measuring the economic freedom of the world in 1975, um, economic freedom around the world has increased virtually every year. I think it may have fallen a bit in, during the recent recession, but there's been a steady growth. And much of that is because of China and India, because you've got two billion people moving a little bit closer to market liberalism. Now, combining some of these themes, here's a Wall Street Journal cartoon. Isn't there something strange about reading Mao's little red book on an iPad? <laughs> well, that's right. I mean, I hear these socialists, the Socialist Caucus in Philadelphia. They endorsed Hillary Clinton yesterday, by the way. Um, but they organized their meetings on social media, all of which is a product of the capitalism that they denounce and presumably seek to overthrow. You know, I was in Barcelona once, and um, first afternoon I was there, I went out and I didn't take my camera because I'm just going to go out and get the lay of the land. I'm not actually sightseeing yet. And I encounter somewhere in the city an anti-globalization march, and it was really cool. They had great green, red, yellow flags, good style. Libertarians don't have much style. They do protest. They wear a tricorn hat, and that's about it. Um, but boy, the colorful flags and everything, it was really beautiful. So I'm standing there watching it, you know, interesting. And in front of me, there's a young black man, and because he was very dark, and because I'm in Spain, not the United States, I'm guessing he's an African immigrant. And he's wearing a Michael Jordan 23 jacket, or jersey, and watching the anti-globalization march. And I'm just, that's cool. Here's an African in Barcelona with a jersey, probably made in China, advertising an African-American basketball player, and we're all watching the anti-globalization march, which would presumably shut down all of this stuff. I debated a conservative once about the ownership society. Now, you know, you would think most conservatives, President Bush talked about the ownership society, conservatives believe in free markets. This guy was actually a conservative, not sort of a market liberal who doesn't like the Democrats. He was a true traditionalist conservative, and he's like debating against the ownership society, which would involve turning your social security into a 401k and everything, because he's saying, a man doesn't want to own paper. A man wants to grow his own food. And I'm thinking, does a man want to uh, weave his own suit? Does a man want to build his own car? Whatever. But I reached over and patted him on the back and I said, I am glad that Josh did not allow his opposition to finance capitalism to prevent him from using eyeglasses, a computer, and an airplane to write and deliver his thoughts on the virtue of self-sufficiency. Very nice if you've got all those modern conveniences to be able to fly around the world giving speeches on how finance capitalism is a bad thing and a man should live on a farm and work with his hands. I mean, technically, when you're writing, you are working with your hands, but that's a little bit different. All right, we're wrapping this up. And now for something not completely different. Libertarianism is the philosophy of Western civilization, of America, and of modernity. I know sometimes we feel isolated. We think people think we're cranks, that we're a tiny minority. And because we 
carry our principles to their logical conclusions beyond what most people can envision, we are kind of a tiny minority. But we are the vanguard of the principles that caused Western civilization to develop, that allowed the creation of the United States, and that allowed modernity to happen. If we had followed the prescripts of traditional conservatism or of socialism, we would not have buildings like this, we would not have PowerPoint clickers, we would not have any of the modern world. It's because we imperfectly adhered to the libertarian rules for society that we have gotten as far as we have. Now, how much more advanced could be, we be? If we had followed libertarian prescriptions more completely, would we be holding this conference on Mars? Maybe. Uh, would we all be 400 years old? Maybe. Um, I don't know what will come as we make more progress toward liberty and therefore toward innovation and growth, but we know it will be something. Libertarianism is the philosophy of modernity and of Western civilization, and yet it drives some people literally nuts. For instance, here's a cartoon that I guess shows the New Yorker magazine's view of limited government. <laughs> See, when you get to limited government, the streets stop. Because if you had limited government, people wouldn't build streets. And here's another cartoon from the New Yorker. I'm going to send them a third one, see if they'll print the same cartoon again. And among other people who are driven crazy by it, here is one of nine cartoons from Esquire magazine. Here's a libertarian astronaut. What makes an astronaut a libertarian? He takes his helmet off. We don't like helmet laws. We don't like being told what to do. If I want to ride a motorcycle without a helmet, that should be my business, and it's very risky, and if something bad happens to me, well, that's my problem, and I went into it with my eyes open. I don't like the government telling adults how they have to take care of themselves. We don't like helmet laws. We don't like regulations, but we respect natural laws like gravity and the absence of air and the necessity of property rights, which is also a natural law. Now, before clicking to the next slide, the last slide, you can applaud like they did for Clinton when he said in conclusion all those years ago. <laughs> a few years ago, I went to a Heritage Foundation dinner that featured the playing of a military march, which seemed odd to me at a think tank political dinner. And I remembered that Ayn Rand liked light Vienna waltzes. And Ed Crane and I said that at our next Cato dinner, we should play the light Vienna waltzes. And so I was delighted to encounter this cartoon a few months later. Husband says to his wife, a light and libertarian waltz for me, or a conservative and authoritarian military march for you. <laughs> and politically, the story of history is the struggle between liberty and power, indeed, the struggle between the authoritarian and libertarian worldviews in the United States, in Europe, in the Muslim world, in China, so this cartoon is a good capstone to our world history. As we developed 
from cavemen trying to figure out how to organize society up to the enduring conflict between liberty and power, between libertarian and authoritarian views of the world. Thank you very much for your attention. And now I believe we have a little time for questions. I have probably exhausted my knowledge of history, but if you'd like to ask about something else, feel free. I'm not guaranteeing to answer. Uh, we have microphones that will come to you if there are any questions. Right there. You could ask me a question any day. Um, so my question, I'm reading a book right now uh, that just came out called A Fractured Republic by Yuval Levin, and he talks about uh, a politics of nostalgia that both major parties in the U.S. today are looking back to the 50s and 60s as sort of a golden era. And in the talk today, you presented a pretty compelling vision of continual progress, at least since the Industrial Revolution. Um, that considered, why do you think that uh, I mean, I guess first you agree uh, with this idea that there is a common politics of nostalgia today where people look to the immediate years after World War II as a sort of golden era that we need to recreate? And if so, why is that uh, perception common given this idea of continual progress, capitalist progress? Well, that's an interesting question. Yes, I think there is something to that. In fact, I think I may have written something like that back around 1980. Um, and Brink Lindsay wrote a paper called, uh, I think was it Paul Krugman's Nostalgianomics um, that you should read along with this book. And one of the things Brink said in there was liberals and conservatives both want to live in the 1950s. Liberals want to work there and conservatives want to go home there. Well, liberals think, oh, what a great era when everybody had a job in a big corporation and you kind of knew your place and you'd work there for 40 years, and then you would get a pension, and you would make stuff, real stuff, not software and movies and personal services. You'd make men's stuff, like steel and automobiles, and that was a great time. Um, by the way, I just happened to hear it wasn't even the point of the show, but yesterday on National Public Radio, they casually mentioned that the average American home is three times as large as it was in the 1950s. So these great jobs in the steel mill allowed you to buy a home that was, what does that mean, about 1,000 square feet? Now they're pushing 3,000. Um, and conservatives want to go home there because conservatives have this idea that before the 60s, Every family had two parents, and the parents were happy, and it was like Leave it to Beaver and uh, the, the, uh, the Ozzie and Harriet family, and wouldn't that be nice? And yes, there's some sense in which it's good for kids to grow up with two parents. Um, one of the interesting things that I think conservatives don't understand is that the 1950s were not sort of the end of an era. They were an era unto themselves. Uh, the 30s and the 20s, well, the 30s were an era of depression. The 20s were an era of rapid growth, but a lot of people died young, a lot of problems back then. So the 50s, in some sense, are this mythical decade, but they were much poorer. And all you have to say to anybody who's thinking, I wish I lived in the 50s, is here's a list of the things you would not have if you lived in the 1950s. Is that okay? Would you trade for that? 
Um, I don't think very many people would. One way of looking at that that I've, I've seen some uh, free market people say, um, I think maybe the Fund for American Studies made a video on this. Would you give up the internet for a million dollars? Now, I see a lot of people here who don't have a million dollars, um, who haven't even yet conceived of being able to have a million dollars. So think about it, Ari. Would you give up the internet for a million dollars? You have to give it up forever. I don't think most people would. Um, so why do people look back at it? Well, people have been looking back at an earlier golden age forever. You can go back at least as far as Hesiod when they're talking about how it used to be better. There used to be a golden age, but now we're in a bronze age. Everything has deteriorated. Now, one of the reasons for that is that old people write these books. We look back to when we were young and good looking and chasing girls and, you know, that was, that was a fun time. That was a great time. Now, in the case of the 50s, there aren't that many people actually left who remember the 50s. So a lot of young people are thinking that these stories about the 50s are a good thing. But there's always been this tendency to think things are getting worse. Part of it is the um, running out of natural resources. That's one thing that people always think. And Julian Simon made a career out of saying, we're not running out of resources. And we're never going to run out of resources because we're going to keep finding new resources. And the market is going to warn us when anything's running short. And then we will find alternatives to it. So people always look back at something that might have been better. I don't think they're thinking very well. And part of our challenge is to remind people that progress is, in fact, better than going backwards. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't some things that could be better. Certainly, libertarians complain a lot about the growth of government and the decline of freedom, and we should. And one of the reasons that freedom hasn't gone away is because we complain all the time about the decline of freedom, and we try to organize people to resist it. And if we didn't do that, we would lose more of our freedoms. Nevertheless, we've gained a lot in freedom over the past 50 years, too. And we should, we should remember to balance our understanding of that. I talk longer when I don't really know the answer. <laughs> yeah, right here. I just had two quick thoughts. One is that uh, the internet makes it ridiculously easy to make a million dollars, and it's a repeatable process, so that's a no-brainer. Uh, but having said that, I'm kind of a self-improvement junkie. And listening to Earl Nightingale's recording from the 1950s, The Strangest Secret, in the 1950s, he says, this is the phenobarbital age, the age of ulcers and nervous breakdowns. And reading Napoleon Hill books from the 20s and 30s, you hear the same problems and complaints that we say today. So my interpretation is this mythical golden age never existed. It's my two cents on that. Thank you. Right here. Hi, thank you for speaking today. Um, I just had a couple, I just had a question. Without being armed with a really helpful slideshow uh, of really cute comics, how do you convey to people, especially this younger um, group of millennials, especially who think that economics are, is, a, is a zero sum game, that people actually don't benefit from economics? Um, that there's ultimately this kind of general gain and loss as people trade. Um, I think a lot of the comics do a really good job, but how do you convey that in a couple, like, Short sentences. Thank you again. Well, I guess one answer is, 
Why would people engage in the trade if they didn't expect to be made better off? Now, I know your professors can come up with theories of asymmetric, uh, of, of, of balance of power. Um, you don't have any choice. After all, you need a job, so therefore you're forced to take a, a job at a poor wage. Um, if all of that were true, then surely people would never get better jobs, and yet people get better jobs every day. I must say, I think it's a little harder right now for you because we've been in about an eight-year recession. And so it actually is hard for your peers to get jobs and to get better jobs. But the normal condition of the free market economy, even a sort of free market economy, is more jobs, better jobs, better wages, um, and jobs disappearing. Norman McRae, the great longtime editor of The Economist, I remember uh, saying somewhere, since the Industrial Revolution, so we're talking maybe two and a half centuries, two-thirds of the jobs in existence at the beginning of the century are gone by the end of the century. So we, we worry about you know, jobs being lost. Absolutely true. Two-thirds of the jobs, he said, at the beginning of the century are gone by the end of the century, but by the end of the century, there are three times as many people employed. Now, obviously, those are not solid numbers. It's going to be different in different countries in different centuries, but that's a general point uh, to recognize. And then, surely, they, your peers, are aware that we didn't have the internet 20 years ago, we didn't have smartphones 10 years ago, um, we didn't have color television 40 years ago, um, we didn't have air conditioning or, actually I think air conditioning starts around the 1920s, but I mean I lived in a house that didn't have air conditioning in the 60s. Um, it wasn't that common then. Um, one of the things I remember that my mother used to have to spend a lot of time doing was defrosting the refrigerator. Have you ever even heard of defrosting a refrigerator? <laughs> You had to take everything out of the refrigerator, open the doors, and start chipping away like you would do on your car on a cold morning to get all the ice that has um, frozen on it. Um, now, this, I mean, and then for a while they advertised self-defrosting refrigerators, but now I doubt they even say that because there's no other kind of refrigerator. So all of that means that growth is happening, and everybody's got a smartphone, not just the rich. In the beginning, the real beginning, um, only the rich people had a cell phone, maybe a smartphone, although I think when smartphones hit the market, they were already you know, reasonably cheap and a lot of people had them. So there's this clear evidence of progress. People have to have an explanation for how is all this progress happening if the market isn't working. But I never convince anybody, so. Good luck. Uh, thank you. This is sort of a similar question. I would think that my liberal colleagues would think that modern conveniences and so on are just a matter of time and progress of science. That if, if not government created like DARPA and Al Gore with the internet and Teflon and that sort of stuff. So what's the best sort of example or the best way to say those things are not just a matter of time. Those things are a matter of freedom. Well, for one thing, you can tell them about the hockey stick. 2,000 years, no growth. Then, we're not entirely sure why. Deirdre McCloskey talks about a change in understanding, a change in ideas that we started 
valuing and admiring entrepreneurship and wealth creation in a way that people didn't before and that that's what turned the spigot on, on making wealth creation happen. Um, but so you could talk about this 2,000 year or 100,000 year. I don't know if you should even try that because I don't know if anybody's going to believe it. But uh, so there's that. Uh, but the other thing is you could say, yes, that's why the Soviet Union invented smartphones right about the time the United States did. And that's why China was turning out all those fabulous movies in the 1970s and 80s. Pretty clear that these advances happen in capitalist countries. Now, when we get to the argument about, yeah, well, Sweden, that's a socialist country, and they have those things. They have IKEA. Um, <laughs> then, then it's a tougher argument. You know, socialism is a complete failure. Democratic socialism, which actually isn't democratic socialism, it's just a high level of taxes and transfer payments, um, is, a, is a tougher argument to make. And we can still say the United States is a wealthier country than those European countries that have higher levels of taxes and transfers and unemployment. Uh, but it's a tougher argument. However, I do think that you can look at Let's look at countries around the world. Let's pair off countries. There's the United States and the Soviet Union, two large nuclear-armed countries for 40 years or so. Um, what was the difference in technology, innovation, standard of living in these two countries? I hope people would more or less understand that. Then let's take countries that are even closer, like China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan, and Singapore. Three of these countries pretty highly advanced, creating a higher standard of living for everybody, and one of them wasn't. One of them was desperately poor and totalitarian for several decades, or East and West Germany. There you have the same people with the same history, speaking the same language, probably going to pretty similar schools, and from 1945, or actually a little bit later than that, up until 1989, doing different political systems. And one way to understand the difference there is Germany produced the Mercedes-Benz, the Audi, the Volkswagen. East, West Germany did. East Germany produced the Trabant. So if this is all just a matter of time, then why didn't East Germany produce Volkswagens and Mercedes-Benz, or why didn't West Germany struggle along with Trabants? Um, you know, they say there was an advantage to the Trabant. You could always hear it coming from down the street. Uh, Mercedes was so quiet, it could be right on top of you before you knew. Um, so th there are pretty clear empirical examples, I think, that demonstrate it takes a certain kind of political system to produce the progress that in this country we pretty much take for granted because we have been growing uh, for more than 200 years. It's hard to see how unusual and how difficult that is. And I think that's a real challenge. I think that we forget how hard it is to create wealth and to innovate because we kind of found the secret and we have stuck more or less to it. Um, and we probably will even for the next four years, although it, <laughs> it may be a real challenge. It kind of looks like my time is up. So thank you all for being here. <laughs>